We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you big science from the small island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're up to at the moment. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Ollie Dove. And I'd like to begin today's episode with an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are all gathering today, the Palawa people, as we record here in Lutruwita, Tasmania. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present, as well as the Tasmanian Aboriginal community who continue to care for country. I recognise a history of truth which acknowledges the impacts of invasion and colonisation upon Aboriginal people resulting in the forcible removal from their lands. So Ollie, today we are talking to our expert guest, Dr Shane Richards. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today? Sure can. Thanks, Neve. Today we're going to be talking about the combined power of two fields of STEM, maths and biology. So on the show today, we have Dr. Shane Richards from the University of Tasmania, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Natural Sciences. Shane's research involves mathematical modelling and statistics and applying these skills to solving a broad range of biological problems. Now, hi, Shane. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Uh, To kick off, as a little warm up, we're going to do a quick fire random questions round. Are you ready? I'll try. Yeah. (laughs) So what's your favourite animal? Oh, dear me, on the spot. Um, <laughs> Moody Brink. Oh. Uh, do you prefer odd or even numbers? Uh, odd. What's your favourite place you've ever been to? Oh, dear. Um, uh, probably the Freysenate area. Ah, oh, really beautiful. Um, how many digits of pi do you know? 3.1459. Four. Oh, four. <laughs> <laughs> so, four. And what's your favourite type of actual pie? Oh, uh, apple, definitely. Oh, solid choice. I actually had some apple pie the other day. Uh, so brilliant. Thanks, Shane. Um, now, you work in the fields of mathematical biology yep. and statistical ecology, which both sound like pretty intense combinations. To start us off, could you give us a rundown on what those fields are? Um, sure. So uh, I, I guess it's just a combination of, well, as it says, biology and mathematics, Um way I sort of find it interesting and what's kept me in the field is I enjoy thinking about biological systems um, and thinking sort of rigorously and so I I come up with what's called models so if someone even myself or someone I interact with describes how they think the world works you know they normally do that with words and then I'd like to sort of formalize those ideas and so you sort of turn that into mathematics um, and then once you've done that, you can use those models to make predictions or um, to try and test whether those models make sense. So can you fit those mathematical models to data that you have and ask the question, you know, is my model consistent with the data? Um, so it's a really, it's a fun way of sort of formalising ideas and then working out whether you know, they, they're consistent with the world around us. And in terms of those models, could you expand a bit more on what that means because to someone outside of um, this field and statistical biology if you hear the word model you think of someone walking down a catwalk yep. which it obviously I assure isn't. you it's <laughs> nothing like that yeah. <laughs> certainly not in my lab um, no it's the, the idea well what's a simple one so you describe relationships between things so 
you know, maybe many of the listeners have done some statistics at some point where you know, you've got some data and you want to know is there a relationship between, like if you've drawn a graph of it, is there a relationship between the thing that's on the x-axis of your graph and the y-axis of your graph? And you know, maybe if you've got a bunch of data that's plotted, so maybe a bunch of points, you might ask the question, you know, if I draw a straight line through that data, is that straight line flat or is it non-flat? Um, and so you know, a model in that case would be the equation of a straight line. And hopefully... If you get the, the parameters, if you remember back to mathematics, the straight line has two parameters, the slope and the intercept. And so you want to try and estimate the slope and the intercept that makes that line run through the middle of the data. Um, and obviously you can have terrible models. So if your data doesn't look like a straight line describes it, then you, know, you can fit a straight line through it, but it's kind of a silly thing to do. So what we want to do is we want to develop models that make predictions that look a bit like the data that we're plotting. And how do you go about selecting which model is best for your data? Ah, well, there's a whole... And no statistician agrees on that. So there's a whole field um, called model selection. Um, and the, the reason there's no one answer to that is that different people have different criteria for what defines a good model. Um, and so, you know, some people might want to have a model that sort of predicts the data as accurately as possible and they don't really care about how complicated it is. And, and other people might say, look, I, I want a model that, that's really as simple as it can be but still does a reasonable job of predicting the data. If you're working with colleagues, you sort of want to talk to them clearly about, you know, what do you want to achieve with these models? And then that sort of guides you as to how you choose the right statistical path to select you originally started out in just the field of mathematics That's solely. Right. What was it that drew you towards mathematical biology in particular? Good question. So, when, well, before I started my undergraduate degree, you know, I grew up in Adelaide, so I spent my um, my youth at the beach essentially. And because there's no surf in Adelaide, um, I ended up doing a lot of snorkeling. So every weekend I'd go off snorkeling with my mate, um, and I had a wonderful time. You know, just looking at the fish and, and, and everything there. Um, so I had an interest in biology, um, but then at school I was kind of I was kind of interested in mathematics. Um, I had no idea at that point actually that you could combine the two into a career. Um, and but I kind of knew, oh, well, I like maths, so I'll go and do mathematics at university. Kind of knowing that maths was my best thing, but turns out I bombed out <laughs> in mathematics. I was convinced that I wasn't going to pass university. Luckily enough for me, I got better as undergraduate degree went on. And so I did a maths degree and sort of specialised in a field called applied mathematics. And I ended up staying on doing honours at Adelaide and did a PhD at Adelaide as well, but still in sort of this um, field of applied mathematics. And I was doing what was called numerical methods. So trying to find out how to make equations get solved accurately. It was sort of all right, but then halfway through my PhD, I decided... Uh, it looks like everyone else, there's a lot of other people in the field that are doing exactly what I'm doing and probably much better than me. Uh, and then I had, a, by chance, I had a meeting with um, um, a fellow called Hugh Possingham at the time at the University of Adelaide, who's gone on to be quite famous in conservation biology and mathematical biology. But he encouraged me to say, look, well, rather than trying to model these passive particles, why don't you... And, and the mathematics behind it, why don't you focus on particles themselves and, you know, think about something that might be acting like a passive particle and he sort of hinted that zooplankton would be a good example of that. So I then thought, oh, okay, that's great because I was interested in snorkelling, as I said, and marine ecology. 
Um, and then I thought, oh, well, okay, I can model these zooplankton as passive particles. Went to the library and realised they they're not passive particles at all. And so I got really interested in the biology. And then because I had a bit of maths background, I was trying to work out well, all these cool things that people are writing about in terms of zooplankton and marine ecology. And I noticed that there wasn't huge numbers of papers that had combined mathematics and biology. And I thought, oh, well, maybe this is the field that I can contribute to. So I managed to scrape through my PhD, like teaching myself some biology that was just enough, and then realising, oh, this is great fun, um, but I, I, I want to do maths biology, but I know nothing about biology. Um, and sort of ever since, I've just been interacting with biologists and getting them to teach me some cool biology, and then me giving back in terms of helping them formalise their cool ideas and seeing whether their data is consistent with it. So it's been a long process, um, sort of always been there, I guess, an interest, but I took a sort of the, I guess, at the end of my PhD to realise that that's actually what I really wanted to do. That's absolutely fascinating. I think you've really done a good sell there on how varied science can be, how many places it can take you, and also how like broad the problems are that you can be solving. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stick with us for part two as we delve more into Shane's particular work here in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Dr Shane Richards from the University of Tasmania who's been telling us about his research field of mathematical biology. So Shane, when you're up against a biological problem to solve, how do you go about tackling it? Do you decide which statistical test or do you look a bit more into the problem at first? So your first step is talk to the biologists so they know, you know, they'll have some pretty good ideas about the, the question that they're interested in and what they think's going on and what they think might be interested. So, you know, go to talk to your ecologist or biologist first. Um, and then you kind of want to work out, well, what sort of problem is it, I guess? Is it, am I just trying to look for relationships between things? So, you know, um, if you know, I always say, you know, if you can plot it on a graph and then you plot it in a good way, you can often see whether there is a relationship there. And, and if that's all you're interested in, you know, is, is there a relationship between whatever's on my x-axis and what's on my y-axis, for example, then then you're doing a purely statistical question. But the, the ones that I find more interesting are whether or not a mechanism that someone's biologist or an ecologist has proposed is consistent with the data that they have. So all models make predictions, but to make predictions they need parameters. Um, and a, a really useful model, I think, is a model where the parameters have some sort of biological relevance so maybe a good example of that would be, well, so at the moment I'm trying to estimate the abundance um, of a threatened dolphin species and so we've got some nice data on um, sightings of these dolphins. So you go out every couple of days, say, in sort of blocks throughout the year and on a boat and you basically ask, you know, what's what individuals that I'm seeing. So often with dolphins you can identify them because of the marks that are on their fins. So I've got a nice data set the day that a survey happened and the individuals that were spotted on a particular day. And the overall question is, well, how many dolphins are there? Which is a tricky question to ask because when you go out there, you're not going to see them all. Okay, So you're sort of trying to solve a problem, which is can I estimate what I haven't seen <laughs> during the survey? And 
you can build a model that will help you answer that question. So if you think about, well, every time I go out there, there's a probability that um, the dolphin will be in the area where I'm surveying, and there's a probability that if it, if it is in the area, um, I'll actually see it. Um, so those probabilities are key things. So they're probabilities you'd like your model to be able to estimate. Um, and another reason you might not see the dolphin when you go out there is because it's dead. <laughs> so the, you want to try and say, well, what's the probability that, you know, between my surveys that the individual dolphins are dying? And so you can develop a model that's got those parameters related to probability of survival, probability of being in the area, and probability of seeing it if it is in the area. You build a model um, that says, well, if that's the case, with certain parameter values, you would have seen the data that you saw, and then you can work out well, what parameter values most match, make my model match the data. Um, and from that, we can work out things like, you know, how hard is it to spot dolphins and what's their survival rate and ultimately what's the most likely number of dolphins out there that would have led to the data that we saw. So that's sort of a nice example, I think, of a mechanistic model. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done all sorts of other models. I work on wombats and mange, um, particularly for Tasmania. So um, many wombat populations um, suffer from mange. Interesting question is, in some populations, they seem fine with it. So you know, you've got a number of individuals with mange, but it doesn't get to sort of epidemic sort of situations where lots of individuals get it and die, but that does occasionally happen. And so we want to know, well, why some wombat populations seem to be suffering terribly from mange and others not? So normally with disease models, you sort of model disease spread by trying to work out how often individuals come in contact with each other, and that's sort of the process that leads to the disease being transferred from one individual to the next. Typically, wombats are pretty antisocial. And in fact, it's not how often they come in contact with, with each other because they don't do that very often. It's the fact that they're sharing burrows. And so we think that they, the, the mites that are on these individuals that are infected sort of get transferred to the burrow and then they hang around that burrow for a while but then leave it and then another wombat at some point comes in. And if the mites are still in that burrow, there's a chance that that healthy wombat can pick up those mites. And so... A model we're looking at at the moment is trying to estimate the probability that a wombat with mites, you know, drops the mites into its burrow and they become a healthy population. And what's the probability if a wombat wanders into that burrow, does it pick up those mites? And those probabilities are really key to determine whether or not the disease can persist um, and stay at low numbers or um, reach problem numbers where you can get local extinctions of wombats. What are the limitations of using models to predict outcomes? Well, so when I do modelling, I always remember that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, so that's a famous quote. And so I always you know, keep that in the back of my mind. And, and that's, that's kind of obvious because, as I said, a, a model is typically an abstraction. And so you're, you've got this complicated world and you're trying to abstract it and simplify it. And by doing that, you have to leave things out. Okay, So you can never create a model, really, that... Well, certainly not the systems I'm interested in, that will exactly mimic reality. And so you need to decide on how much realism am I willing to lose to still make it so that it can make predictive outcomes that are useful. Um, but yeah, you have to be pretty pretty humble, I think, when you're a modeller. Um, and, and then ask biologists, does this make sense, what, what this model's producing? Um, if not, back to the drawing board. You've worked with lots of different biologists over the years, which means that you've studied, so as you mentioned, dolphins and other wombats, and you've also yep. done butterflies and elephants. Yep. When you're 
new in a team and you've been given a problem to assess, do you find yourself needing to take a lot of time to study the study species in to be able to put the statistical analysis into biological context? Uh, yes. So there's, I'm always actually not sure how much I should learn about the biology often before I build a model so that I don't get too many biases in in what the model's going to predict. So so for me, the ideal situation is you, know, you, you, is you come and chat with some biologists and they'll, they'll give you some ideas about what's going on in terms of basic biology. But I often try and hold back on asking too many detailed questions about the biology maybe beyond what's been in, or told to me about what is considered originally important. Get the bot model to make some predictions and then... You know, I quite like it when I, I don't quite know whether the predictions make much biological sense and, and then the joy is, in fact it happens more often than not, which is nice, is that you then go and say, look, the model's kind of predicting this, does that make any sense? And, and you know, often biologists will go, oh yeah, that does because of X, Y, Z or whatever. But it is an interesting question to, to ask, you know, how much biology do I need to put in the model at the start for it to give some pretty good ballpark estimates of whatever it is that you're measuring. So I have a question, Shane, about how people can trust scientific predictions because we live in an era of conspiracy theories and denialism. And I think part of that comes from the inherent uncertainty of the scientific method and uh, of predicting things. So with something like, you know, scientists have been predicting human accelerated climate change for several decades now how can people who maybe don't have a stats background scrutinize models to understand the complexity but then also to like actually distill whether or not it's trustworthy so yeah it's a good question i think well i wish science was you know the, the scientific method as you mentioned was taught more at to kids at a younger age you know and i don't i'm not sure why that isn't the case because it's not doesn't seem to me that kids aren't capable of learning the scientific method. You know, um, I've got young kids, and you know, unfortunately, they're forced to hear this from me. Um, <laughs> but they quite enjoy it, you know. And I, we, I'm always asking questions and, and getting them to to try and answer them and and to justify their answers. So it, it's it's not straightforward for us. So I think you know, teaching a bit more probability, teaching the scientific method, maybe a little bit of simple statistics, um, and just getting people to answer or ask genuine questions about well what would you expect to see if the way you think the world is happening is actually happening um, and get people maybe to reflect a bit more deeply on some of these questions um, you know how could it be that that all this data and these plots that we're seeing of say for example climate change isn't happening by chance and just by chance it looks like it is but I guess maybe part of the problem is people don't as you said trust scientists that they, I guess you know, it's a bit worrying if they think that the data is not real data because they think people have manipulated in some way. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined with my co-host, Ollie Dove, and Dr. Shane Richards from the University of Tasmania. Stay with us for in just a moment, we'll be looking at the future of the statistical world. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking about the world of mathematical biology. 
My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Nee Chapman along with our expert guest Shane Richards from the University of Tasmania. Now a fun fact listener is that I had the pleasure of being in one of Shane's statistical classes last year in which we were learning how to conduct statistical analysis in a computer program called R. Now I like many students and scientists, have very much a love-hate relationship with R. It's absolutely fantastic, but it can drive us mad. (laughs) So Shane, how has the developing ability of high-speed computers and programs such as R affected the way we go about statistical analysis? Um, Well, start off with, I was in the same boat as you. My God, I hated R when I I started it. It was... um, well, in fact, the reason I, I actually started using R in the first place is because I was a cheapskate. So R is free, um, and for many years I was using a program that was paid for, or you had to pay for it to, to, to produce nice plots. And then I ran out of um, funding to have my site licence for that plotting program renewed, and so I thought, oh, I still want to make nice plots. I'd heard that R makes nice plots. And so my introduction to R was me being able to make cheap figures for my publications and then suddenly realised, oh, it actually does other things as well Um, and it's its own sort of what's called computer language, so very general. You can use it to do all sorts of things Um, but it's not straightforward to use and for me, even though it wasn't too bad for me because I had a computer science background as an undergraduate so I kind of had some idea of some of the main concepts with how that language R worked Um, but I do feel sorry for biologists mm-hmm. and medical science students that um, get to get thrusted upon it. Um, this, but it's like one of those things where, you know, with many things, if you only know four or five key things, you can use that. You, you can sort of use R to do a lot of stuff. You know, you don't need to know everything about R to get it to work. Um, so with my teaching, I try and just teach what I think are the essentials to sort of get you started and then you know hopefully if I've done my job well I've got you excited by R and statistics that that will motivate you know you to go on yourself and google and, and look at all the free sort of resources that are online as to how to to build your skills further in that. Um, what I would say about R though is it sort of has been for me anyway a game changer so when I used to do a lot of my collaborations um R kind of said you don't need five different software programs. You can do it all in one go with this new, well, relatively new concept called R Markdown. It's, it's a language that basically lets you read in data, it lets you do the statistics, and it lets you produce the output, um, and it lets you then embed the any notes that you want to write, the code that you use to do your analysis, the output from the analysis and the figures, all into a single document and you can turn that into either a PDF or um, HTML document. And so typically I create, I turn my full analyses or my ideas, the code, the output into an HTML document and then I can send that to a colleague. So, so R, R has been fantastic in that regard. And, you know, maybe it, it will help a lot with, you know, as was mentioned earlier on, you know, how much do we trust analyses you know it, it's all generated from the analysis and so it's very clear now what you've done and someone can scrutinize it and and, and in fact it should be scrutinized when you send your analysis off or your a paper that you've produced send it off to a journal journals are now demanding more in terms of sort of how did you do the analysis beyond sort of the little snippets that you write about in say the method section of a paper journals are now asking that you provide these are 
documents um, because they, as I said, they very clearly explain what you have done, and it makes it you know, hopefully it improves what's called reproducible science. So you know, if someone wants to repeat what you've done, it should be a lot easier to do it now from these documents that R is creating. And as I said, it's free, um, so it's easy for anyone to get access to it. Um, do you think that that would increase the like the democracy of science by having something that's freely accessible yep. to lower and middle income countries, for example, yeah. because these other statistical packages were expensive? I, I think, you know, for example, Afri- many African countries that will struggle to ever get funds to to support some of these more expensive statistical packages. It also it makes collaboration a lot easier. So even collaboration across statisticians. So the other thing that R does is, and, and I must admit, I was quite sceptical of R when it first started in that I thought, well, if it's, you know, if it's free, anyone can create what are they, whatever they want. So you, in R, you can create what are called packages. There's no formal way of doing that, well, in terms of people checking what's going on. If you write some code and it doesn't do what you said it would do, it very quickly gets picked up and people fix it quickly. So my initial concerns were very quickly, you know, I didn't worry about it anymore, that the quality of some of these functions that are freely available you know, is equal or possibly even more um, sort of reliable maybe than some of these other statistical packages um, because everyone is checking each other's work. You know, it is highly collaborative now. Um, and so if you do anything silly, you'll, you'll be caught out pretty quick. Um, so I think, I think science has benefited enormously from it through easier to collaborate, um, it's transparent, um, and it's cheap. I've got to say, personally, I'd never used R Markdown before your course, and it's been a, <laughs> quite a game changer for me, and I'm really glad that I learned about it at the beginning of my PhD, because I think it will make it definitely easier as I go on, as you say, that repeatability and being able to share it with supervisors and things. Um, To finish off today, Shane, could you tell us what excites you most about the future of statistics? Future of statistics? Well, maybe maybe even R is part of it. The ease with which it's... Well, the power of the different sorts of tests that can be performed now. You know, computer power is so... Well, maybe memory is probably more impressive. You you can analyse really massive data sets now, and we are getting massive data sets. So you know, the term um, big data is, is, has hit us. Um, and so we need software, we need routines, statistical routines that can deal with this big data. Um, and um, I think you know, it's not just R, but R, R is um, providing a nice platform. Big data, I think, is probably one of the really exciting areas of statistics. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shane. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you did like the show or if you have any questions, you can always get in touch with us on social media. So search for That's What I Call Science on your favourite platform and send us your questions or ideas for future episodes. My name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Ollie Dove, for all of her production work, but also for a great episode, and our expert guest, Dr. Shane Richards from the University of Tasmania. Thanks and goodbye, folks. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio.
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.